Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So this is actually a really... So if you remember, so I mean, it seems like forever, but for the last, I don't know, at least two or three months, what we've seen is Christ interacting. Every time we preach, every section that we've looked at for the last three months is Christ in dialogue with other people. He's teaching, he's in dialogue. So here we're actually, for the first time in a while, at least in the Gospel of Mark, we're seeing Christ on the move again. So Christ, he's, he's done teaching in that little in that area where he was. Now he's on the move. So this right here is a transition episode. So now he's on the sea, and where is he headed? Well, he's actually on his way to pagan territory. So next week we're going to see that that's where he casts out demons, and the demons go into the pigs. Well, why, why are there pigs there? Well, because they're not Jewish. If you're Jewish, you're not going to be pig herders. Okay, so Christ is on his way to pagan territory, but this is a transition scene. So here it is. Um, the other thing to look at is, is this is what we're going to see at the, by the end of this, that you're going to have a foretaste of God's redeeming creation. So when you think of creation, uh, one, one way to look at it is, is it, it can be quite astonishing. It is for me. If you think about creation, what's, what's going to be the ultimate result of the creation that we're living in? Well, it's not going to be waddled, wadded up and, and thrown away in a trash basket. Okay? What God is doing with the creation right now is he's restoring it. He's redeeming it. And we're going to see this today as well. Um, also, consider this Christ as creator. We're going to see Christ as creator. A lot of times when people read through this, there's a lot of emphasis on you and me and how God in the midst of the storm, he comes in and he takes care of us and so that we can be like Christ asleep in the cushion. We don't have to worry. And that's, that is absolutely true. We're going to see that. However, the primary focus of this passage is the person of Jesus Christ, who Christ is. It's not upon us. That is important. We'll see that. But the reason it's important for us, the reason any focus at all is going to be on us is because of who he is. And we're going to see that, that Christ is much more. They even ask the question, who is this guy? Who is this guy that can calm even the waves? That's kind of where everything is leading, and that's the point, right? He's not just merely a man. So everything about this passage is going to point to Christ as more than just a man. Christ as more than just a teacher. And because he's more than a man, because he's more than a teacher, we can have confidence that in the midst of whatever storm or trial we're going through, Christ is going to be there. And he can actually deliver us. That's the beauty of it, okay? Um... So, let's start in verse 35. Look at verse 35. On that day. Okay, on what day? Well, on the previous day, what was he doing? Remember last week, we saw Christ giving parables about the kingdom of God. So, on that same day. So, he's been teaching for a while now on this boat. Remember how the crowds were so large that he had to go on the boat So because they were pressing him, they were crowding him. So, he gets on the boat. He stands up. Every, or he, he sits down. Everyone else is standing. And so... Mark is here saying that on that same day when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Now, we saw this earlier as far as this mindset. What is remarkable about this is look at verse 36. It goes together. So he says, let us go over to the other side. And then it says 36, leaving the crowd. Is that how your starts? Okay, the NSB says, leaving the crowd. Why is that remarkable? We saw this earlier whenever the disciples come to Christ when he's in prayer. And they say, Christ, everybody is looking for you. You got to go back to these guys and do what you're doing. Do your miracles, do your thing, say whatever you want. But everybody's hunting you. Remember the word was hunt. 
And Christ, contrary to what any, any of us in our culture, I would assume, would do, says, you know what? We're not going back to this crowd. We're going to go somewhere else. And what's nice about this, what's refreshing about this, is that it's the opposite of, of what you would see like the celebrity culture kind of pastor do. Right? The celebrity pastor, wherever the people are, he wants, to, he wants to be the center of it. He wants the people to come and flock to him. When that happens with Christ, Christ is like, you know what? We're going somewhere else. And now, part of this is because of his mission. His mission is, is, is not just to any specific group. He's trying to get the word, he's trying to get the word out. He, he's on a limited time. He knows that. He has limited time to do this. So he's trying to get everywhere he can. That's true. But at the same time, in our culture, um, even when it comes to like church growth, I mean, everybody's always into numbers. Everybody's always into, you know, uh, uh, buildings and projects and all these things. And Christ is like, you know what? I, he doesn't care about that. And as God's people, we shouldn't care about that because we can't bring the growth anyways. You know, the growth, we saw that the last the last three or four times. The, the growth, as far as anyone's salvation, as far as the church goes, this growth is not up to us. We can't do it. All we can do is be faithful to spread the word, to share the word, to have lifestyles that are consistent with the word that we preach and we share. But the growth, the increase is up to God. And so here Christ is, and Christ is like, you know what? We're going somewhere else. He leaves the crowd. And then it says in verse 36, okay, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, because he had been teaching in the boat, like I said. Now, notice it says, and other boats were with him. Now, the commentators point out, and I think they're right, I think there's something to this, that there are little details here that only an eyewitness account could actually know and give. So think of the eyewitness details here. How would you know that other boats were with him? Why would you even write that down, right? Because that was something that Peter would have recognized. Peter told Mark. Mark wrote it down. So this is an eyewitness account, just kind of a side note. Okay, but verse 37 is really where things start to happen. Okay, verse 37. Now, by the way, stop there. As far as the other boats, the other boats were probably followers of Christ also. So when Christ gets in the boat, they start getting the oars and they start pushing off all the other people. Because remember, it's not just the 12 disciples. All the people are like, all right, he's going to the other side. We're going to the other side. But by saying that, guess what's going to happen? They are now going to be in the same danger as the disciples who are in that boat with Jesus. So they're going to be, because because they want to follow Christ, their life is now in danger. They're going to risk their lives. They don't know that yet, but their life is going to be at risk because they follow Christ. We'll see this in a minute. So 37 is where things uh, start to get stormy. Pun intended. All right, 37. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. A fierce gale of wind, okay? In the, in the Greek New Testament, it would be something like a furious squall, or you could even call this a hurricane. So it's not an actual hurricane with an eye and everything, but in their language, they would have called this a hurricane. For them, it would have been a hurricane. Now, what's unique about this is this, okay? So it, the first time when you read this, you're thinking, well, wait a minute. So, so is this some kind of like supernatural thing? They're, they're, they're on the lake. Apparently, it was calm because they got in the boat. And these are seasoned fishermen. These are experienced guys, right? They know what to look for. They know what signs to watch out for. They know, hey, if the, if the remember Christ accuses the Pharisees, hey, you know that if the, if the sky is red, there's going to be a storm tonight. So these guys are fishermen. You know, it's just their second nature to kind of be watching out for certain signs when you can and can't be on the water. And so they, they, they decided that, hey, everything looks okay. Let's get in the boat. Let's go to the other side. And so a lot of times, if you're just reading this, you're thinking, okay, well, maybe God supernaturally brings in some kind of, some kind of catastrophic storm just to test their faith. Um, 
And what happens, though, is this. I, so, you know, I said supernatural. I guess any time a storm or something happens, we know that God is the one in control of that. He's sovereignly ordaining that to happen. But when it comes to this particular sea, this is the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is 30 feet beneath sea level. Think about that. 30 feet beneath sea level. Well, I, I mean, I can't fathom that. I've, I've always kind of been in this area. What are we, 3,000 feet above sea level? I know when we were in College Station, man, and anytime you get to the coast, you know how flat it gets around the coast, right? So 30 feet beneath sea level. And then here's the catch, though. Around this sea are hills and mountains, one of which 30 miles to the north is a mountain whose altitude is 9,000 feet. 30 miles to the north is a mountain 9,000 feet high. You're 30 feet under sea level. Think of that. So what's that going to do? If you ever fly into Albuquerque, New Mexico, I think in the back, we, we got guys that have probably done that. But I remember when I'd fly into Albuquerque, man, I would hate flying into Albuquerque because they have those mountains there. And every time you fly into Albuquerque, it, it, without fail, it seems like there would be all kinds of turbulence and, and, and things flying everywhere because of the mountain, because of the gusts of wind that come off those mountains. So that's, that's all that's going on here. So because of the, 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 the geographical situation, this sea was always prone to tumultuous situations. Everybody kind of knew it. Okay, um, So this isn't necessarily something that's, that's out of nowhere, even though it is out of nowhere. It's, it's, it's expected. It happens. But here's the reactions. Now notice the reactions. Okay, So number one, you have two reactions to this storm. In verse 38... Okay, um, actually, verse 37, let's finish that off. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Okay, here are the two reactions. So number one, you have the disciples' reactions. Number two, you have Jesus' reactions. Okay, the, the disciples, verse 38, Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So here are the disciples. They're, again, they're seasoned fishermen. And they go to Christ. And what do they say? They're basically saying, if you're saying, if you, if you claim to be this person that we've, we, we've heard you claim to be, do you not know that we're perishing? We're in the middle of a storm. How are you asleep? Now, is there a story in the Bible that this reminds anybody of? Sleeping during a storm. Jonah. Right? Jonah. So let's turn to Jonah. Let's turn to Jonah. And I want you to see some things in Jonah. Because there are definitely similarities, but there's also differences. But there's no doubt that some of this... Remember, Jesus does not um, hesitate at times to describe himself, in a sense, as a type of Jonah. Remember when Jonah was swallowed up by the well? He was in the belly of the well for three days and three nights. And Christ himself refers to that passage when he's talking about to his own resurrection. That he will be in the earth, he will be buried for three days and three nights as Jonah was in the belly of the well. Now Jonah is not sleeping for the, for the same reason as Christ is sleeping. But at the same time, you're going to see something similar. So look at Jonah and then look at chapter 1. Look at verse... Let's look at verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. So here we are saying that God sovereignly throws this, this sea into a whirlwind. He starts kicking up the waves. Okay? The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. And I do want to say one thing. Because I, I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. Okay? The fact that there was a storm on the Sea of Galilee as the disciples are going across it was most definitely God's sovereign plan of action. He, there's a reason why. Okay? So same thing here. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. It's almost identical. 
The language is very similar. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. Verse 6, So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And you see that last phrase, we will not perish? That's the exact phrase that you see in Mark chapter 4. That's the exact language. And so what Mark is doing, anytime you see that, Mark is tipping us off that there is, there is a, there's, there's something in Jonah that should remind us of what's happening in the life of Christ. Okay, so what happens though is this, the difference between, what's the difference between Christ and Jonah? Well, if you remember Jonah, Jonah is told to do one thing and Jonah turns around and does another. So Jonah in his, it's almost like, um, you know, anytime, and for any of us, you know, there can be sin in our life that we become so comfortable with. We're no longer in any, we don't even have the awareness of how bad off we are because of our sin. That can be any of us. That is certainly, um, we're, we're all certainly prone to that, but at the same time, I think we all know what I'm saying. There are people in our lives right now who perhaps are in such a state of self-oblivion when it comes to their own sin, they, don't, they, they have no conception of the danger that they're in. That's Jonah. Jonah's sound asleep. Jonah's comfortable. Jonah's at peace, but he shouldn't be. Right? He's, he's at peace for the wrong reasons. Christ, on the other hand, is at peace... Because he knows who God is. He knows he's sovereign. He knows his, he's comfortable in the sovereignty of God. And so there are differences. There are similarities. Jonah's a prophet. Christ is a prophet. Um, but Christ has complete trust in Yahweh. And by the way, this is the only time in the Gospels that you'll ever see Christ asleep is always during a storm. Imagine that. You'll never see him sleeping any time else. It's always just during a storm. And he's trying to tell us something. And we'll get to this. Okay. But that's the, let's go back to chapter 4. We're going to flip back and forth to, uh, in a sense, uh, or a little bit with, with Jonah here. Um, so let's, let's turn back to Mark chapter 4 and go on. Okay, but the disciples here, I want to look at the disciples real fast. So when the disciples are reacting this way, I mean, you can't really accuse the disciples of... Uh, the only thing you can accuse them of is, is uh, as far as is doing something that, that's uncalled for is, is maybe the accusation. You know, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Of course he cares that, he, that you're perishing, right? So that's not the right way. But as far as they're reacting in the way that they're doing, you can't really blame them, right? That's the natural, natural reaction to a storm. When you're, in, when you're in danger, that's how you respond. And so they're responding how you would, especially, again, these are seasoned fishermen. You know, if, it's one thing if I'm in an airplane, going back to the airplane analogy, like going into Albuquerque, man, and that plane starts going like this, I really am thinking, okay, we're about to go down or something. But I bet maybe some of the pilots in the back or, you know, William Air Force guys who are in airplanes all the time, they know better, right? They're like, yeah, it's like, chill out. We're not going down. Every, this is exactly what's supposed to happen. But it's a whole nother thing if you see pilots start freaking out. That's what's happening here. So they know they're in danger. They know this is serious enough to wake Christ up and accuse him of not caring. So it's a serious storm. But look what happens, okay? So in verse 39, Christ gets up. And this is the most astonishing part of the whole passage, I think. Okay, he gets up and look, how, look what he does here. So he gets up and rebukes the wind and says to the sea, Hush, be still, as though it is something alive, as though it's animate. All right? Now, where else do you have this, this, this terminology, hush, be still? You know where you see this? We've already seen this. If you go to Mark chapter 1, 
Look who Christ tells this, this exact phrase to in Mark chapter 1, 23 through 27. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Be quiet and come out of him. Look at 26. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. The same phrase, the same word in the Greek, the, the word used there is for something like muzzled. It's a unique word. It's hardly ever used. That's why it's important. If it was something that was used all over the place, not a big deal. But because it's very rarely used and only for specific circumstances, again, Mark is trying to alert us. What Christ does to the sea is the same thing that he does to this man who's possessed by demons. In other words, this is a form of exorcism. Exorcism. Think about it. What is he doing? He's casting. Think about when God, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Check this out. Because think of what Christ is doing. Christ does not lay his hand on the ocean or the sea. He doesn't put his hand on it. He doesn't doesn't do something to make the sea. What he does is he speaks. And when he speaks, the sea listens. The sea obeys. Just like over here in Genesis chapter 1, look at verse 2. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. And of course, this is all the way through Genesis. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. Boom, there was light. Okay, and then you go down though and look at verse 6. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the, the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse and it was so. And that was heaven. Okay, now if you go down though, you're saying, look at verse uh, 9. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Think about what that would look like. So God is speaking in the very beginning in creation. You have this earth, you have this, this globe that is nothing but water. That's all it is, it's water. But when God speaks, what happens is, is that water moves. That water separates. And so dry land appears. So what Christ is doing here, he's ultimately, I mean, and that's why the disciples are so stunned by the end of this. And they're more of, and I don't want to, I don't want to give this away. This is something that they are recognizing now as, okay, who are you? Right? It's one thing to see demons cast out of a man. Okay. All right. That in itself is incredible. That's remarkable. But you had certain spirit workers in those days that could claim to do the same thing. Moses's, uh, or excuse me, Pharaoh's magicians, they could do certain tricks like that. But when you're talking about control over nature itself, that is absolute. You can't, you can't, you can't have that unless you're Yahweh himself. That's the astonishing thing here. So this is a reference to Yahweh, but it's, it, is, it is referring to the fact that Christ, um, and next week we're going to see that Christ is going to uh, perform this exorcism on another man. But when he does this, nature is made to conform to the will of its maker. And it happens by a word. It happens by a command. Okay, so you're bringing, what is he doing? There's chaos, there's confusion, there's despair, there's concern. And out of all of that, what does he do? He brings order to all of that. Okay, so when the disciples are in the midst of this, they're afraid. But you know what's amazing? But look what he says. Look what Christ says in verse 40. All right, so the wind, the wind dies down. It becomes perfectly calm. But in verse 40, and he said to them, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? You know what the, the word for afraid there is? 
Not why are you afraid? Why are you a coward? That's a little sharper. Now think about this. You're in the middle of a storm. You're a seasoned fisherman, right? The waves are going crazy. The, the boat's about to sink. And you're, of course, naturally, you're, you're a little worried. You're a little concerned, right? And then Christ turns around and says, you know what, guys? You're acting like cowards. Now why? How can you, how can you reconcile the two, right? Is it cowardly to, to act in that way when you're in the midst of the storm? Yes, if Christ is on the boat. <laughs> If Christ is there with you, yes, that is a cowardly way of acting, you could say. Now, here's the thing, though. Can you blame them? I don't know. It's Certainly Christ is, is accusing them of something, so I think we can. But we can only blame them in the sense of, if I blame them, I have to blame myself. Because how many times, and this is kind of where the personal application comes down to, how many times in my own life, when I'm in the storm, and this is the thing, you know, it's, it's hard to say this stuff because I know it's cliche. And if you've ever heard this sermon, if you've ever, if you've ever seen anything on this, it's always about, you know, you're in the midst of a storm of life. Life is looking bleak. And, and that's a fact, though. Right. And it is a fact that in the midst of our circumstances and chaos and the things of life, we we do react. Right. We do react. We're human beings and we react. Okay. however, here's the thing. Here's what it comes down to. How do we react? Right. Because it's not to say that if you are in a severe trial, that it justifies acting in a way that is faithless. Okay, And I'm saying this to myself, too. Right. And certainly more so if you're in a situation that is not a severe trial. And yet we we react in a situation, um, you know, we we, we react simply. We freak out. We we get beside ourselves. Okay, that in itself, there's really no ground for that. Now, I understand if you're like, hey, man, what are you talking about? Like, how, who, who can actually do that? I can't. But I guarantee you this. Is it not true, right? Whatever happens in our life, what does James tell us? To rejoice whenever trials come our way. Rejoice. To, to be, in a sense, happy about it. Not gleeful, not belly chuckle and everything. But why, why does he say this? And I was just reading this actually in First Peter today. Go to First Peter. Now, check this out. Because, again, this all goes... It's not just about these disciples. It's about us. It really is. Okay, we can definitely apply this and say, hey, here's a situation in our life. It's not a good situation. We are prone to to act in a sinful way. But what does the Bible tell us about this? Okay, what 1 Peter tells us is, uh, look at verse 6. Okay, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now you're saying, well, Peter, how would you know? What have you ever been through? How about a boat in the middle of a storm when you're a seasoned fisherman that's about to go down? He was in that boat, right? He was the one that that Jesus turned around to and turned around and said, Peter, you're, you're acting like a coward. But Peter, later on in life, he's recognizing that this trial that I went through, these things that we go through, this is what gives us the grace to have this faith. Again, what does he say? Our faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that the same thing happens at the very end of this book. At the very end, he says, verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves, of chapter 5, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety, anxiety on him because he cares for you. 
So we have a God who is sovereign. That's the whole point. Because what they're doing here is they're assuming that Christ doesn't know that they're going through it. That Christ doesn't care about them. That's, I think, why we react the way we do, is it not? Because when we're in the midst of our own trials and our own circumstances, our mindset is, is, hey, Christ, do you not see what I'm going through here? Where are you? Right? I, I, I mean, this is a really tough situation. I need you right now. Where are you? Well, he's there. That's the whole point. The sovereign God of the universe is the one who puts us in situations to go through things. So like Peter is telling us, our faith is refined. Our faith is better. Because ultimately, isn't that the main thing? Now look at, it, look at what James says. James says this in, uh, in James chapter 1. Look at verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Um, and then he goes on. And look at verse 7. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But then later on, he talks about, and even in Hebrews, it talks about how Christ is the anchor of our souls. What's an anchor? It's something that holds you down in the midst of a situation where everything else around you is going in a certain direction, but you're anchored down so that you don't go in that direction. That's the When you read the scriptures, I remember like three years ago and I was going like when I was having my health stuff really flared up and I didn't know what it was and man I it was like it, it I was like these these fishermen in a sense you know because I'm like hey what's going on but I tell you what I I read I read through the New Testament during that time and I it was like I saw the New Testament in a way I'd never seen it before and the Old Testament too, but, but specifically when I was reading through the New Testament, I realized, man, the whole book of the Bible, especially the New Testament, is written for people who are suffering. It really is. And so when you're in the midst of those trials, I promise you, you read through the New Testament, you will have a different perspective of what the New Testament is about. And if you read the letters, who are they written to? Who is the Gospel of Mark written to, right? The Gospel of Mark, think about the context that Mark is written to. So if this is your first Sunday here, Mark wrote this, this gospel to Christians in Rome who are suffering persecution at the hands of Nero. And so they're in a situation where they are in a storm. And they're being persecuted. And they're asking, God, do you not care? God, do you not see our children being dragged off to the arena? God, do you not realize that they're sewing us up into animal skins and throwing us to bears and, and lions and, and, um, and uh, what else? What's a big animal? <laughs> you name it, they were throwing them to that. Nero's lighting us on fire. Do you not care about these things? Where are you at this point? Where And so it's no, it's no accident that these things are in here so that later on you're reading this and you're like, wow, you know what? I, I was accusing Christ of not caring all this time of thinking that he was asleep and all this. And the whole time, of course he cares about us. I'm just being a coward. And I'm not trusting him. And I'm saying this to myself. Because <laughs> this, you know, if I go through something small, I'm you know, pulling my hair out. And more, you know, much, much, much more would it be if you're actually going through a severe scenario like these men or like some people are. Okay, but the point is, is that it doesn't matter what you're going through. Christ is sovereign. Christ is the one who created all things. Christ is the one that, 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 that knows how many hairs are on your head. Christ is the one who laid down his life for you. Christ cares about you. He loves you. He really does. And so he's not just throwing his hands up and says, hey, man, you're on your own. I want to see how you act. He's with you in the midst of that trial. Whether or not we can experience it, whether or not we can feel him, whether or not he speaks audibly to us, whether or not we see a miracle, 
Usually we don't see any of that. Usually none of that happens. But he's still there with us. Okay? Now look what happens next. Going back to Mark. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Okay, now verse 41, they became very much afraid. (laughs) You're like, wait a minute. I thought they were afraid. They weren't afraid compared to the fear that they have now. So think of this, okay? So, so what this is in the, again, the, so the Greek New Testament, in the Greek New Testament, it's, it's something like they feared a great fear. Verse 41, they became very much afraid. They feared a great fear. They are terrified now. Compared to the fear that they had, it's nothing now. Now they realize, okay, what in the world has just happened? It's natural to be concerned or afraid of a storm when you're at a sea. It's natural to be afraid of certain things, right? But when you see that sea suddenly hush and be still, all of a sudden, okay, now they're realizing, all right, who, who is this? They even ask the question, right? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is, who is this? And when you see, turn with me to Psalm 107. I know we're going a few places in the Old Testament today. Praise God, right? The Old Testament. All right, 107. Psalm 107. This is a great psalm. Okay, when you get there, look down at verse, uh, let's start, let's go down to verse 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He spoke and raised up a a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens, they went down to the depths, their soul melted away in their misery, they reeled and staggered like a drunken man, and were at their wit's end. These are fishermen on the sea, and they're scared to death. But verse 28, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. This is a reference to Yahweh. And here you're having Christ do the exact same thing that you're seeing right here. It's the exact description of what's going to happen. It's amazing, right? So when Christ, uh, you know, Mark, I tell you, Mark is in so many ways a book that proclaims that Christ is Yahweh, that Christ is God. And because of that, see, that's why I was saying earlier, the whole parable is not just about, oh, look what Christ does for you. Look how much he cares about you. That is important. What's most important, though, is the fact that Christ is not just a man. He's not an ordinary person. The fact is, is that Yahweh himself, the maker of the universe, is the one. When we say, hey, he cares about you, we're talking about the maker of the universe caring about you. The maker of the universe being concerned with the situation you're in. Being concerned with the trials that you're in. We see this with Jonah. Uh, we, you know, I, I said we'd go back to Jonah. And we should go back to Jonah. Because even the pagans realize this. Go to Jonah. When, when, whenever God calms the sea the pagans themselves realize that this is no ordinary action that we just saw okay so uh, okay look at verse 15 so they uh, chapter 1 of Jonah chapter 1 verse 15 so they picked up Jonah threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging then the men feared the Lord greatly Yahweh And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. These are pagans. And all of a sudden they see what happens and they say, you know what? We're going to offer sacrifices to Yahweh, the God of the universe. Okay. This is, and and, you know, here's the thing. I, I, I just, again, speaking for myself, 
you know, it's so easy to become claustrophobic in the sense of we just see our situation and nothing else. Right. But if you if you if you are reminded of the fact that, number one, first of all, the situation we're in and we're all going to go through trials and, and or you're going through trials that are very grievous and difficult. Right. And it's not to di- I, please hear me. It's, this is not to diminish any of that. Just like it's not to diminish what the guys in the boat are going through. I would be jumping out of the ship or something. I don't know. But here's the thing. Here's the reality. If you if you step back. And I know it's easier said than done, but this is what we're called to do, right? If you step back and remind yourself, okay, who is it who is in control of all these things? It's Yahweh. Why is it that I'm going through these things? Because he loves me, because he cares for me, because I know that all of these things are working for good for those who love God. They're always working for good, for the good. I know that, okay? Here's where it comes down to, though. Do I trust that? Right? Do I really believe that? Am I going to cling to that hope? If this is just some ordinary guy, if it's the president, if it's somebody who has a lot of power, even Caesar, you know, in these days, even Nero. I mean, everybody would petition Nero. Nero, can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? But let's be honest, Nero's just a man. You know, there are so many things in life that Nero can't help you out with. The president, of course he can't help you out. But your own family, whoever you're thinking, who, you know, your, past, your pastor, if it's, if it's left up to any man, they're going to disappoint you. And you should be concerned and you should be helpless and hopeless and in despair and pulling your hair out because, hey, this is it. That's why atheists, agnostics, skeptics, anybody outside of Christ, hey, I'm, I'm with you, man, freak out. Because you have no hope, you have no answers, you have no reason for anything, yeah. I don't, I, of course you're gonna, of course you're gonna lose your mind over this, right? But in Christ, it's different. See, in Christ, and again, I know it's easier said than done, but in Christ, we have to remember that Christ is a rock and he cares about you. That's really what this whole thing's about, okay? Now, I want to say this though. We should ask the same question as far as ending. This should be every one of our questions, right? And this is going back to what we're saying. Who then is this, right? Who is Christ? Who then is he? And we say, well, he's God, he's Yahweh, he's the God who made all things. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is Yahweh. I believe that, right? Or we can say, yeah, I mean, he might be who he says he is. He might be. You know, the disciples here, you notice what the disciples call him. A good teacher. He's a good teacher. But a good teacher can't get you out of the storm. Okay, so who is he? And not only is he Yahweh, but think of this, going back to Jonah. When the storm is raging and everything is in a tumult and Jonah is thrown into the sea, what happens? The sea is stilled. God's wrath is appeased. God is satisfied with Jonah, right? Because Jonah, the one who he was after, he gets him. Think about what Christ does. You want to know how much Christ cares about us, how much he loves us, how much Yahweh, this Christ who's in this boat asleep, but caring for his disciples nonetheless. How much does he care for us? Okay, not only in our lives, yes, when our lives are a tumult and our lives are, we're in the midst of this storm, yes, but think about what our sin, our sin would cause and is causing, apart from Christ, our sin is, is causing something like a storm of God's wrath, his righteous wrath. That's what this, you know, when you're looking at what happens to Jonah, when you're looking at, think about the days of Noah and God's judgment comes upon them. 
And what happens is, is with Jonah, you're seeing a, a picture of what Christ does on the cross. When Christ goes to the cross, the wrath of God, this tumult, this judgment, this anger, this sea of, of God's wrath. Christ throws himself into the middle of it, into the sea of God's wrath. So that that wrath will not be poured out upon us. So that that judgment will not fall upon our heads. Christ takes our place in that judgment. Christ is the Jonah who's thrown into the storm of God's wrath to deliver us from God's wrath. By suffering God's wrath in our place. This is not just a mere teacher, right? This is the savior of our souls. He's not going to just let you go through something without being there with you. He's not going to let you go through something without any kind of purpose behind it. That's the point of what Christ is trying to show these disciples. I'm with you guys. Don't be cowards. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Okay, now, um, secondly, there's a sense in which uh, our, our own hearts as believers can be like this storm that the disciples are in. And I got this from Matthew Henry. He's talking about, he's an old Puritan, but he's talking about, you know, in the midst of not just storms, like serious storms, like, like, um, like what Tyler's going through. That's a storm, man, right? But even in like these little mundane things where it's like, hey, I'm upset because I'm, I'm sleeping. Think about Christ who's sound asleep. He's been laboring all day long. He's been working his tail off. He's doing a lot of ministry. A lot of things are happening. He finally gets a little shut eye. And then the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, we need you. Right, so think about it, you know, in our own lives, you know, I, I have, uh, my son comes in there, he comes in, wakes me up twice a night now, it seems like. So he'll come in at like 3 a.m., and he'll just want me to take him back to bedrock and put him to bed. And then he comes in at 6, telling me he has a, a dirty diaper, right? So two times a night, and I'm going to bed, and I'm thinking, all right, it's hard to sleep knowing you're going to be woken up two times that night. It really is. But here's the, here's the point, though, okay? So you have these things in our life. That's one example. That, that's kind of like this storminess, right? It comes up, and you, it's just like this tumult. It's something that's uncomfortable emotionally. And, and, and what Matthew Henry points out is that, you know, remind yourself of what Christ tells this storm at sea whenever your heart gets to that place. Because that's sinful on my part. Why would I not want to help somebody out? Why would I not want to sacrifice my, myself for someone else in the same way that Christ does? And, and, or put it this way, in a lesser degree than Christ says, right? Matthew Henry's point is, whenever you're in that situation, tell your heart to hush and be still. Whenever you're worried, tell your heart to hush, be still. That's his point. I thought that was great. Now, um, lastly, as far as creation goes, this is important in the long run. Okay, and I mentioned this at the very beginning. Creation is in the process of being restored and redeemed right now. Creation is in the process of being redeemed. You see this in Romans chapter 8. Verse 19, um, this is Paul. He says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So what is he saying there? When man sinned, the entire creation came under the curse. And so when Christ is going through here, Christ is giving us a foretaste of creation itself being liberated uh, in, the, in, in the end times. When Christ returns, creation itself is going to be redeemed. And so he's giving us this insight into that already taking place on a, on a, on a smaller level, of course. Um, but it's to say that, that it's not like Christ is, is not mindful of of the fact that they're, you know, when you think of tornadoes and hurricanes and everybody, you know, atheists will say, well, if God is so good and loving, why do tornadoes happen? Because this is a fallen world, man. That's part of the curse. 
But one day there won't be tornadoes. There won't be hurricanes. There won't be earthquakes on earth. That's part of what God is doing. Christ is restoring creation. It all comes in. It's a, it's a package. Okay, so be encouraged that Christ is not a man. He's not a buddy. He's not even just a, just a president, just so-and-so, right? He is the God who is sitting, sitting on His throne right now, who has already declared that the nations are already His, that you are His, that your soul is His. If you're in Christ, that He loves you, that He knows how many hairs are on your head, which tells you the intimacy with which, in which He knows you. And He's sovereign over every single thing that's taking place in your life. And if that's the case... He says, hey, don't be a coward. Trust Him. He's with you. He's with us. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have given us not just a Son, but such a Son as this Christ who cares so much for us that He throws Himself into the, into the, the judgment that we deserve, the wrath of God on the cross, oh God, that He cries out, my God, my God, why have You forsaken me? So that as, as Your people today... No matter what we go through, no matter the trials or the storms that we have in our life, we know that we will never be forsaken by you. And we can praise you today for him because it's his work and it's his person that gives us that, 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 that hope and that promise that we will never have to say you have forsaken us. Lord, thank you for being with us in our trials. Thank you for this, for this, uh, for this example for the uh, for the life of Christ and how all of these things that Christ went through they were not just for that generation but that they're they're for your people and, and everyone who uh, especially your people who read this and, and take heart from it Lord so Lord give us grace give your people grace bless those who are in trials uh, big trials small trials Lord especially the, the the severe trials Lord bless your people Lord give them extra strength extra grace. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit upon them. Lord, and help all of us, Father. We know that Christ tells us that in in this life we will have tribulations. It's not a matter of if, it's when, and we know we will have them. But we praise you today that Christ has told us to take heart, to take heart because he has overcome the world. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.